Hear the word of God from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant, whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Marley, for reading this powerful passage. So, good morning, Waypoint Church. I'm Danny, one of the pastors here. um, And I'm delighted to be preaching this sermon to you. We are in a sermon series. We're looking at the Gospel of Matthew and at Isaiah. The book of Isaiah, for the prophet Isaiah from the Old Testament. They're written about 600 years apart. And one thing we learn about Matthew as we've been studying it is that Matthew relies heavily on Isaiah and the promise of the Messiah that will come. And we learn that even from this passage today where Matthew takes a pause to quote Isaiah. But for this morning, I want to start with a question. When you're, and this question is just, just one to help you ponder, but I think it's one that a lot of us feel as Christians, as followers of Jesus. And we, we look for the answers. And the question goes like this, and it's a series of questions. When you're getting attacked, or you feel misunderstood, or you just can't handle the brokenness around you, what do you do? What do you do when you look at the injustice and the sin and the brokenness in the world and you realize that even in your own heart there's a lot of this selfishness and brokenness? What do you do? What do you focus on? What promises of God do you go back to? And how and where do you find forgiveness, find restoration, 
find hope. And then on top of all that, how can we get out there and tell others, which what we're called to do? You know, how do we tell others of the forgiveness and restoration and hope? Well, I have good news. Good news. The good news of Matthew, the gospel. Gospel means good news. We use that word a lot in church, but we're saying our faith is built around good news, a proclamation. The good news, the gospel of Matthew, is a good place. I'm intentionally using the word good a lot. It's a good place to turn with these questions, where we learn to rest in the mercy and kindness of Jesus. And I believe Matthew 12 really shows us this. The passage we're looking at this morning contrasts the Pharisees with their unjust and sinful arrogance toward Jesus and his mercy and compassion. Many of the Pharisees and religious leaders of the first century had turned the Jewish religion into one of this false idea of sacrifice. And sacrifice in the air quotes. Their sacrifice was not really a sacrifice to honor God but it was to preserve their religious customs and their status. They had a spirit of arrogance, a spirit of superiority, and little humility or interest to check themselves for false teaching, pride, hypocrisy, or injustice. And unfortunately, the church has been guilty of this since the beginning. And just as Jesus has to call out the Pharisees, we as brothers and sisters need to look at each other and look at our own hearts and see are, are we acting like this? But the Pharisees create this structure, and Jesus confronts it directly. But he doesn't even confront them. They confront him first. And that's kind of what's going on in this passage. Matthew recounts a time when Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees as he heals a man. So instead of rejoicing in the healing, they're mad at Jesus for breaking the Sabbath. Matthew also quotes Isaiah 42, showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promised servant of Yahweh. This is kind of the whole section, Isaiah 39 to 66, is talking about this promised suffering servant, this victorious king who comes to save his people. In contrast to the Pharisees, Jesus is merciful, compassionate, kind, gentle, and he brings healing and renewal and restoration, and they just bring, why are you breaking this law? So how do we get here? We're going through the book of Matthew and Isaiah, but right now we're a little bit more on Matthew, this week and last week. Last week, Pastor Lawrence preached from Matthew chapter 8, now we're in Matthew chapter 12. So what, what, what happened in between? Well, Jesus talks about the cost of following him, then Jesus calms the storm, Then Jesus restores two demon-possessed men. He heals them. Then Jesus forgives and heals a paralyzed man. Then Jesus calls Matthew, the guy who wrote this book, who's a tax collector who's shunned by his own people, the Jewish people. Then Jesus heals a dead girl, the bleeding woman, and a blind and mute man. Then Jesus proclaims the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Then Jesus sends out the twelve. Then Jesus summarizes and affirms the ministry of John the Baptist. Then Jesus denounces unrepentant towns. Then Jesus explains how the Father is revealed in the Son, and this is where we get the famous passage that he's gentle and lowly, and his burden 
is easy and his yoke is light. And then we get to the passage to where we're at, we're at this morning. And some of you be like, are going to think or say to me or us, why are we skipping these passages? Shouldn't we cover every part of Matthew? And there's, there's a couple reasons we are. One is we're covering the healings all together. And two, we're going to study Luke. And every one of these accounts is also in Luke. So we will hit every one of these. But for this series where we're looking at Isaiah and Matthew together, we're focusing on key themes and the big picture of Matthew and how Jesus is the Emmanuel promised in Isaiah, the God with us, how he's the suffering king of Isaiah, and how he's the good news and the hope and the light for the nations of Isaiah, and how he's the victorious king of Isaiah and all the prophets. So for for this morning, we're going to walk through Matthew 12. And this is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. This passage is actually the reason we decided to study Matthew and Isaiah together. Because it just really shows how Matthew wants us to look at Jesus as the promised Messiah of Isaiah. And Matthew takes a pause in the middle of his account to do this. Mark and Luke, who tell you know, many of the accounts of Jesus in a similar way to how Matthew does, do not focus on this passage, and they don't quote this passage at all. And I, Matthew chooses to quote it in a long, the whole phrase, the whole section of it. So before we move on to the awesome part where it talks about Jesus is the hope for the nations, and he is the servant king that we've been anticipating, that they were anticipating, and that, that came to save us, I want us to look at the story before that, where Jesus and the Pharisees are going at it. But really, the Pharisees picked the fight. They're the ones who picked the fight. And Jesus is just answering their questions and responding because he's the Messiah. And he's the one, the very one that they're supposed to be worshiping is the one that's right in front of them that they're missing. So let's look at what's going on with the Pharisees, why they're so angry, why they want to kill him. And what is Jesus' response? I'm going to read part of the passage again that Marley just read. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and he began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. So, yes, Jews are not supposed to work on the Sabbath. They're supposed to rest. Uh, And that's the law, the law of Moses. Now, Jesus is trying to say that that he's not saying that the law is bad. But they're just walking through the fields, they're hungry, they grab some food. What should have happened if they weren't on a journey, if they were settled in their house, a typical Jewish person would just have prepared all the food in advance the night before so they wouldn't have to do a lot of prep. Now, by the time of Christ, people were, the Jewish people were probably a little more serious about this than if we read, you guys are in the Bible reading plan, you're reading Kings, Kings and Chronicles. And the, the people at that time barely follow any of the laws. All they want to do is worship and do the, the stuff of the people around them. So for, at the time of Christ, there were people really trying to do these practices. And the Pharisees thought it was a big deal to really stress, don't mess up on this. Like a bad person is a person who messes up on breaking the Sabbath. And then Jesus answers them. He says, haven't you read what David did when his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only the priests. Haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? 
I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and he's quoting Hosea here, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So why they want to kill him is because of this statement. That he's calling himself the Son of the Man from, from Daniel, but he's also attacking their authority. But we might miss something, but they wouldn't have missed it. David's not, David was anointed king. Saul, Samuel had said that David's going to be the king, but Saul is still the king when this account happens. So they would have read it also as Jesus is trying to say, I'm going to be the king. And he is going to be the king. He is the, the rightful, like David was, the anointed king at that time, but Saul still was in power. So they took this as a threat. So, and then, he, and then going on from that place, he went into their synagogue. A man with a shriveled hand was there, looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus. They asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So they're tricking him. So instead of thinking about this poor guy with the shriveled hand, what are they focused on? the strict interpretation of the law and the way that keeps them in power. And this is a good lesson for us as Christians, because sometimes in the midst of trying to, you know, always get the doctrine right, we miss the whole heart of the doctrine. We miss the, the root of why the, the, the rule's there it's, itself. But Jesus heals the man, um, but before that, he tells the story. He said, if any of you has a sheep that falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and he was com completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. The first thing I want to point out is Jesus had not actually broken Sabbath law in healing the man with the shriveled hand. But he did break the Pharisaic code. The Pharisees had added extra burdens and laws on top of the scriptures. And Jesus is trying to show them that they are generally missing many of the main points of the scriptures with this law, with these additional rules that they've added on top of it. And Jesus does this and kind of shows them their error by quoting five words from Hosea. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And Matthew has already shown that Jesus quotes the same Hosea passage earlier to the Pharisees when he doesn't eat, and they ask him, Jesus, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? And the tax collector's house who he's at at the moment is Matthew, the guy who wrote this book, this what we're reading Maybe he's writing it about 20 or 30 years later. He's at Matthew's house, and they ask him this question. So this is from Matthew 9, verse 12. On hearing this, Jesus says, Is it not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick? But go and learn what it means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The Pharisees didn't want to lose their power and their grip. So they will plot to kill Jesus, even though Jesus is doing the very things that show the restoration of the kingdom. Jesus is continually showing them that what was the point of Hosea? What's the point of Micah? What's the point of the prophecy of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah? 
to show the God of justice, to show the God of mercy, to show the God who, of the weak and who loves the oppressed and the person who's the downcast and wants to restore them. And the Pharisees missed it. But not all the Pharisees missed it. One of the coolest stories in the whole Bible is, in my opinion, is the story of Nicodemus. He also was a Pharisee. And he slowly starts thinking, maybe Jesus really is the Messiah. Maybe I got it wrong. And he even has, sets up this secret interview with Jesus, the secret nighttime meeting where we get John 3.16 from. John chapter 3. And then if you look at the burial of Jesus, Nicodemus risks everything as a Pharisee to be part of the people who follow Jesus and, and literally help, help him and his, help, his, him, help the, his disciples bury him. So Paul was a Pharisee and God saves him. So there's something going on, but there's also this, this desire for them to hold on to their power and to kill Jesus. And Jesus is continually showing them another way. And I love the fact, I love this passage from Isaiah that Matthew quotes. We're going to read it again. This is Matthew 12, verse 15. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. So Jesus knew it wasn't his time. He knew he would let the Pharisees and the authorities kill him. And that's how he dies on the cross. But it wasn't his time yet. He still had to continue teaching and healing and restoring people and bringing his message. It says, aware of this, he withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him and healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him because it wasn't his time yet. And this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. And this is a quote, kind of a paraphrase from the Greek and the Hebrew translation of Isaiah 42. Matthew's paraphrasing it. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. Praise God. We're part of those nations. Like Waypoint Church, right now we exist because we're part of those nations that got the justice because of Christ. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. So in this section, there's so much meat here, but I want to look at three words. Justice, name, and hope. What is the justice here? What does this mean? And it's bigger than maybe even how we think of it as in English. But it, it means to deliver a righteous judgment. To deliver a righteous judgment. And there's only one person who can fully deliver a righteous judgment, the one who is righteous himself, who has no hypocrisy, who, has no, who is, is God, the Redeemer who came to save us, Jesus. David couldn't fully execute a righteous judgment because he had sin. Moses couldn't fully execute a righteous judgment because of his pride and his, you know, just because he's human. But Jesus can. So he will proclaim justice to the nations. I think it's fascinating that this passage is about the Pharisees. There's no, there's no non-Jews, there's no Gentiles in this account. 
the Sabbath account. So Matthew chooses to bring in a Gentile passage. It would probably would have been more interesting if, if Matthew put this here after the Roman centurion account that we read in, in Matthew 8, or after the Canaanite woman account that we're going to read a little later. But Matthew puts this here to, to, to begin. He's tying together Matthew chapter 1, where we learn about the four women who are outside of the covenant, I mean outside of the Jewish people, who begin to bring justice. We learn about the Magi, who are sorcerers, kind of these soothsayers for the king, who get it right, and Herod, who's supposed to be the Jewish king, gets it wrong. And we begin to see this idea of proclaiming justice to the nations. Remember, the Pharisees and Herod, who we've learned about already in Matthew, now have both plotted to kill Jesus. They are just as violent as the pagan nations that they condemn. It says, but the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Justice to deliver a righteous judgment. And we thank God that he can do this. And we learn as the rest of Matthew unfolds, how can he do this? Because of his humility, because of his, the suffering servant who dies on the cross, and the victorious king who raises from the dead and is our king who conquers death and, and sin and the powers that make us never to be able to fully be righteous and, and just. The next word I want us to think about is this word name. It says, you know, in his name, the nations will put their hopes or will be the hope of the nations. And I want to look at this, this diagram I'm going to put up on the screen. So if you read Isaiah 42, Isaiah 42, some of you were taught the NIV is the best translation. Some of you were like, stay away from the NIV. It's only ESV. Some of you are just like, I don't know, it doesn't really bother me. I, I like using all the translations. Uh, at a waypoint, we typically use multiple translations just because that's the best way to really get the essence of the original languages in English. And we have a lot of people from a lot of different cultures, so we like to use language that they can catch the first time. But if you look at Isaiah 42, 4, in the NIV, it says, In his teachings, the islands will put their hopes. Well, that's different than what we read in Matthew. Then if you look at the ESV, it says, and the coastlands wait for his law. That sounds radically different. And then if you look at the New Living Translation, which is a more modern English translation, it says, even distance lands beyond the sea wait for his instruction. And then that LLX, that means the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was used by the early church. It's basically the Bible that Paul used. Uh, it says, and in his name will be the hope of all the world. And that word world is ethnos. And the word name is, it's, it doesn't say law. Well, in the original Hebrew, it says, in his law, the islands, which means nations, will put their hope. That's why it's there. But when they translate it into the Greek, they translate the word law, the same word like instruction or Torah, the same word into name. And I think this is amazing. I think that Matthew is, wants to show this. He wants to show that you're not saved by the law. You're saved by the name of Christ. And this, this had already been determined before. Matthew doesn't need to do this. For some reason, when they translated the, the, from Hebrew into Greek about 150 years before Matthew, or you know, 200 years, they could substitute, they could say, this Messiah in his name or in the law, this instruction will be the hope. 
So that's why we as Christians speak a lot about the name of Jesus. You guys ever heard that growing up in the church? There's power in the name of Jesus, right? Because there is. We pray in the name of Jesus. In Matthew 24, 14, there's a continuation of this theme that is first brought up here. It says, In this gospel, the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And this is a passage also where Jesus is kind of addressing the Pharisees. And then at the end of Matthew, Matthew 28, 18, put it up on the screen, it says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Remember, we've looked at the theme of authority. Jesus, it's a theme that continually shows up. We looked at it in Matthew chapter 8 last week. All authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of who? All nations, same word. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the name, same word. So you see what Matthew's trying to do. He's trying to begin to shift the paradigm from this religion of the Pharisees where they're missing the mark, the religion to the religion of Mary and Joseph and Elizabeth and Zechariah and Anna, the ones who were really anticipating this Messiah, who were, their hearts were humble. And that's why I believe Jesus starts the whole, Matthew wants us to know, he starts the whole thing off with the proclamation, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not blessed are those who want the power. Blessed are those, the poor in spirit. I want to look, quickly look at the word hope. John Nowlin, or Nolan, a New Testament scholar, says this about this passage. The universal mission to invite people to participate in this hope is anticipated in 2414. That's the passage I read a second ago about that the gospel will be preached to the whole world. And established in 28. Uh, 19 and 20. That's the Great Commission. The name language used in 1221 uh, to express allegiance to Jesus reoccurs again in the Great Commission. The language of hope is suggestive of a process underway, which fits well with the kingdom, with the way the kingdom of God is conceived in Matthew. Matthew may well, sorry, Matthew may well intend his readers to link hope in the servant's name here, with the significance of the name of Jesus and Emmanuel that we see in chapter 1. At the beginning of the sermon, I ask these questions. When you're getting attacked or feel misunderstood, or you can't handle the brokenness, or you just don't want to deal with it, or you don't know what to do when you look at the injustice and the sin all around, when you realize that... Many, a lot of that sin is in your own heart and you're, you're, there's selfishness in you and, and it's, you just don't know what to do. You don't know what to focus on. You, you just like, you want to turn back to God. You want to find this forgiveness. You know that you're forgiven, but you, you just want to find it and you're, you want restoration and hope. And then on top of this, you want to tell others of this forgiveness. You want to share with others. And I believe Matthew 1 through 12, what we've looked at, so far, has really shown us that there's only one way to do this. And it's by following the way of Jesus. And living under the authority of Jesus as, the king, as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. 
And there are dozens of teachings and hundreds of insights that we could just pull from just this Matthew passage, just this passage, and then the parallel passage in Isaiah 42. But for this morning, I'm just going to focus on four truths of Matthew 12. This is kind of like the action points and just the truths all rolled into one. The first thing, we accept God's mercy and forgiveness only by the way of Jesus. The second thing, we honor God and live for Him only by the way of Jesus. Three, we love others only by the way of Jesus. And four, we reach the others. It should say we reach others only by the way of Jesus. I was originally going to put we reach the nations, and then, but we reach others, including the nations, only by the way of Jesus. What is the way of Jesus? My easiest answer is the sum of the Gospels. What the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what they teach and proclaim, and how the rest of the Bible points to them in teaching and proclamation. So let's look at the way of Jesus, particularly in this Matthew 12 passage. Truth one, we accept God's mercy and forgiveness only by the way of Jesus. In the, in the Isaiah account, he talks about this bruised reed. Bruised reed. A reed, I'm, we're going to put a picture out. These are two reeds from Israel today. One is at the Dead Sea, one is just the ground. So, and a reed, the one, on the, the one that looks more like a wheat stalk, not the green one, those could actually be used as pens. They could use those they could, as writing tools, but once it was broken, it was done. But generally, these are not very desirable things. If they're broken, they're done. There's no way to restore one of these. So Jesus chose the, Isaiah chose an example. God gives him this prophecy that even the bruised reed, the most fragile of fragile, God will still protect and withhold and not even go after. Like he... And then the second example is the smoldering wick. So this is, uh, would have been kind of a lamp that they would use. You know the passage, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. This is the kind of lamp that they would use. But this wick is barely holding on. So it's not good for light, and it's causing smoke to fill the room. And if we really look at this passage, we are the bruised reed. We are the smoldering wick. I was reading some commentary on this. Calvin really was fascinated by this idea. A lot of other church, people in church history, like when you read this, this is us. We're the ones who God came to save. When Isaiah is proclaiming this, he's like, the Pharisees think they're fine, but actually humanity, the nations, were just this bruised reed, this smoldering wick, and God came to love us and restore us and, and bring us back. We're this fragile, and we are given victory. We're not just restored, we're given victory. But it's not our victory, it's His victory. And we thank God that we get to share in this victory and live in that victory. Because remember, right after he talks about the Bruce, Bruce Reed, he says, you know, there will be victory and hope in, in this Messiah. R.T. France says this, far from letting them be broken and quenched, He will lead them to victory. For in him they will find justice, a word whose scope in the Old Testament is wider than a mere legal vindication, denoting rather the setting right of whatever is not as it should be. That's Christ-like justice. The complete establishing of the will of God. The paradoxical victory of the meek and the gentle servant is brought out 
by Matthew's paraphrase of Isaiah 42. Truth two, we honor God and live for him only by the way of Jesus. And the text reminds us that we have freedom in Jesus and we look to his way. His way is patient, nonviolent, peaceful, kind, and full of love. Christ did not respond back by fighting. He responds by gentleness and then going and healing and saving the people that he was called to save. He doesn't get into a, a spat with the Pharisees. He just continues to execute the justice that God has called him to execute. And in doing that, he's showing the injustice and the, the, the hardened hearts of those who oppose the way of Jesus. And he is this nonviolent, gracious king who enters Jerusalem on a donkey in Matthew 21. One way of Jesus I see in this passage is Jesus' humility, his meekness, and his willingness to be misunderstood. Jesus did not use earthly power structures to accomplish his task of saving his people. He actually uses tactics that were quite the opposite. To be the servant king who proclaims justice to the nations, he didn't quarrel or cry out. No one even heard his voice in the streets. He didn't crush those in, because what this is kind of saying is if he were to do that, he might crush the very people who need his help. But he was more concerned about the man who needed his healing than he was about satisfying the answers of the Pharisees. And he doesn't crush them or the smoldering wick. He's not going to crush his people. He's going to continue to fight for his justice because he is God and he, he's the only one who can bring this justice. And he's doing this until he has brought justice through to victory. And the, sometimes in the Old Testament when we read these prophecies, they're fulfilled in Christ, but they're also talking about the final fulfillment in Christ when he returns and makes all things right. And that's why we talk a lot about we're there, but we're not there yet. Remember how the Pharisees are missing it. They're using the power structures of this world to keep their status and their unjust structures. And they're willing to do it to kill a man who's doing good and not even rejoice when someone is healed. Jesus says the way of the kingdom has been there all along. And that's why he's already, Matthew has showed, he continually will quote these five words from Isaiah, I mean from Hosea, saying that God requires mercy, not sacrifice. He is the God of mercy. Then in Matthew 22, in another bout with the religious leaders, we read, Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, another religious leader group, and the Pharisees, they got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second, like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This is the way of Jesus. Truth three, we love others by the way of Jesus. And this ties into what we just read. All the law, the prophets hang on this. Love your neighbor as yourself. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, you could do everything for the kingdom. You could have the best spiritual gifts. You could be the most, the, you know, the, the guy in the church that's doing everything. 
If you don't have love, it's worthless. How will we bring Christ-like justice? That's one of our desires here at Waypoint. We want to do this by being Christ-like. We're going to bring Christ-like justice by being Christ-like. It'll never come in power structures. It'll come in humility and gentleness. And this is hard because it's easy to look at other ministries that seem the more power they get, the, the more they're doing for the kingdom. But that's not the way of Jesus. We always have to remain humble following his way. We're going to bring Christ-like justice only by staying Christ-like. Our tendency is, wanted, is always going to be to want to fight fire with fire. But when we do that, everything's going to be burned. Can we trust God? There is a time to fight. Like Jesus is fighting the Pharisees here. But the way of Jesus is not to use evil to fight evil. And we see that in the Sermon on the Mount, and Paul reinforces that in Romans 12. So we must let Jesus fight the battle, and we join him in the fight by yielding to the way of Jesus. And what is the way of Jesus? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Gospels show us. Those, that should be where we go first. Truth four, we reach others only by the way of Jesus. How will we bring the good news to the lost, hurting, and broken world? How will we reach the nations? How are we a part of reaching the nations? We have to go tell people. We saw that in Matthew 24 and 28. But I believe Jesus is showing us here that his way of bringing justice and hope in his name to the nations is not the dogmatic, self-promoting, power-seeking, arrogant way of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but is the way of gentleness, compassion, mercy, and humility, the way of the servant, the way of Jesus. I'm going to put up a picture. This is Hindustani Covenant Church in Pune, India. I went on a team that visited them maybe 10 years ago. And we went just to see what they were doing. We called it a vision trip. But I probably learned more in those 10 days than I learned in some of my seminary classes. Because this church is well established. It was established by Europeans over 100 years ago. It's a church for wealthier people. And the caste system... The lingering of the caste system still exists there, so most of the people in this church have money and resources. But the main thing this church does is outreach all around. They go hundreds of miles in every direction. And one day they were like, you want to come with us to our eunuch ministry? And I didn't know what that meant. You know, I was like, eunuchs from the Bible. I just didn't know what it meant. And that's how they translated it in English. And basically these were men who had... Something was off when they were in their childhood, and their parents just shunned them and kicked them out. So they formed a community. This, this goes on for 100 years or so, where they kind of dress kind of like women, they just, and they're, they're just shunned. They're outcast. Many of them become prostitutes. And the guys who went to this group are all the guys you see in the picture, well-dressed. I mean, these people in, in, are untouchable, but the pastors of this church just go pray for them. They set up a home for them. They run a ministry. I was just so shocked by the whole thing. And, I, and they're just like, of course we do this. This is what we do. We're Christians. These people need a church. No one will set up a church for them. So we did. I mean, it wasn't even on their radar that like, yeah, you know, this could cause ramifications for you in other circles. Their church actually about five years ago, someone came in and torched it. Luckily, the original structure is, is, is stone. So only the inside burned. 
I'm going to show another picture. So not only do they do that ministry, but look at this picture. They go out to the desert. It was a, this was in May in the middle of India. It was like 120 degrees that day. I had never been that hot. I grew up in Florida, and I was never been that hot. But you notice the green in the middle of the desert. This church years ago figured out ways to catch rainwater and set up irrigation systems. Some, some missionaries came from other parts and showed them. So they're doing this. They're, they run this eunuch ministry. They have ministry for prostitutes. They have ministry for children. And they could just be a comfortable church. They, they have the resources. They have the land. They have everything they need. And I think this was one of the first times in my life I really began to see how being gentle and lowly can reach people for Christ. They, they never sought power. That's the way of the servant. If we truly want to reach others for Christ, if we want to reach the nations, we don't start with a plan of power. We have to start with gentleness and humility. The humility of our leader we must begin to act and look like Jesus. That's what a broken and hurting world needs from us. Our hope is in the life, the Emmanuel that Isaiah proclaims. Our hope is in the death, the suffering servant of Isaiah, and the resurrection, the victorious king of Isaiah, of Jesus. In this, in his name, in the name of Jesus, the name that is above every other name, the name of the one who suffered and died, the name of the one who, was, who has healed us and saved us, the name of the one who is merciful, just, and patient. In the name of Jesus, by the way of Jesus, under the authority of Jesus, do we put our hope. He is our hope. He is the hope for everyone. He is the hope for the nations. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for allowing us to really dig deep and look at Matthew chapters 1 through 12 and see what, it, what the life of Christ, the birth of Christ and the life of Christ looks like as you continue us on this journey through Matthew and Isaiah. God, may we be people who follow the way of Christ. And when we turn or we mess up, may we be a body together helping each other, pointing each other back to the way of Christ because you are the hope of the nations and you've called us to make disciples, but that's only going to happen when we're gentle and lowly and, and we know that we, we have no power on our own, that you bless those who are poor in spirit, who recognize their need for you. May that be us, and may you use us to reach the triangle and reach the nations and love the triangle and love the nations in the name of Jesus, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.